Welcome to Betrayal Recovery Radio, the official podcast of APSATS, the Association of Partners of Sex Addict Trauma Specialists, hosted by Dr. Jake Porter. APSATS is a nonprofit organization providing professional training and compassionate support to partners affected by problematic sexual behavior and betrayal trauma. In each episode, Dr. Jake guides a conversation of enlightening insights and practical tools to empower those affected by sex addiction and betrayal trauma to use their voices and live their values. The mission of Betrayal Recovery Radio is to offer hope to those in need of healing and growth to those moving through grief. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jake Porter. Welcome to this episode of Betrayal Recovery Radio. I am Dr. Jake Porter, and here we go again talking about the subject of grief. We talk about this a lot on Betrayal Recovery Radio because it is such an important part of the process of healing from betrayal uh, and and the trauma of discovering hidden betrayal. So uh, today I'm going to be joined with someone who I consider a friend, a great colleague, an APSATS board member. She is one of the new trainers for uh, APSATS Cornerstone Training, the Multidimensional Partner Trauma Model Training, Kat Etherington. Kat is the Director of Recovery for Naked Truth Project. She lives in Durham in the northeast of England, and she is a certified professional coach and integrative counselor working with individuals and couples impacted by problematic sex- sexual behavior and betrayal. Kat was the first ever European practitioner to be certified by APSATS and now serves, like I said, on the board of directors. She and her team of practitioners support individuals and couples all around the world with their online programs and sessions. In this uh, conversation with Kat today, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of what grief really is, what it has to do with betrayal, and how people begin to actually move through the process of mourning after discovering hidden betrayal. And uh, I, I know that this will be an impactful process uh, conversation to, to many, regardless of where you are in the process of healing from betrayal. Uh, but I do want to just mention it's especially going to be relevant for those who are right in what we might call the messy middle, that messy middle. So You've discovered what's happened. Um, things have settled a little bit from the initial disruption of all that's going on. Maybe you've already received a formal disclosure, but you're not at the place of feeling the healing, feeling the renewal, feeling the growth. You're in that messy middle. Grief is often what we are facing at that time. I always tell my clients, grief is where the healing happens. It's hard. It's it's uh, sticky, it's tough, it's difficult, and yet it is where the healing happens. And so today we're going to talk about that and give some helpful insights into how to harness the power of grief for your own healing. I also want to let you know that Kat has generously offered some discount codes for any listeners here who want to take advantage of her upcoming uh, retreats, retreats for women, grief retreats. Uh, here in the U.S. and in Australia, and also a couples retreat here in the U.S. She's offering discount codes of $100 off uh, the grief retreats and $200 off of couples retreats. You will find those discount codes in the show notes below. Hey, before we jump into that conversation with Kat, I do want to thank APSATS, the Association of Partners of Sex Addict Trauma Specialists, for sponsoring this um, this podcast. This is the official podcast of APSATS, and APSATS is a group that advocates for the care of betrayed partners and also works to train professionals who work with those who've been betrayed. And to that end, there are a lot of opportunities coming up to learn from APSATS. On April the 13th and 14th, Jessica Edens will be presenting on betrayed families, support for children and families in the aftermath of discovery. Uh, the next month, May the 5th, Dan Drake will be presenting boundaries for the sex addict, how to delicately manage safety for both partner and addict. And then coming up June 2nd, uh, Ray Galen Emerson is presenting alone in the aftermath, 
using the multidimensional partner trauma model with survival survivors of betrayal related divorce. And then of course, AppSet's cornerstone training in the multidimensional partner trauma. This four day training will take place again in June, June 6th through the 9th. You can find out more about all of these events, find the calendar, find out how to register online at appsats.org. That's A-P-S-A-T-S dot O-R-G. All right, let's jump in now to my conversation with my friend and colleague, Kat Etherington. Well, hello there, Kat. Hi, Jay. Good to see you. Hi. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Pretty good. Good. Well, welcome to Betrayal Recovery Radio. We are really glad that you are here today and uh, talking about this really important subject of grief. Yeah. So let's just, yeah, let's just start with that big picture. Why are we talking about grief today? Why? And how does that link to the experience of betrayal? Yeah, I think that's a great question because I think a lot of partners are asking that question. Like, why are you even bringing up this idea or topic of grief? And um, couples similarly will be asking that same question. And um, I think as a person who's experienced betrayal, that was a question that I had. Like, what does grief have to do with this experience? Mainly because in the beginning, I was angry. I wasn't sad. I was, you know, like there was the emotions I was experiencing in the beginning just didn't include or point towards grief. Um, But I guess as I journeyed my experience and as I have walked with um, couples and women, you begin to understand there's that meme, isn't there, that does the rounds on the internet that says, um, I sat with my anger long enough and she told me her name was grief. Um, And Uh, that's kind of my experience that underneath those presenting emergency kind of emotions is actually a whole bunch of experiences of grief and loss and lament and just Mm. that kind of cry of it wasn't supposed to be the way that it feels like it is and and so yeah I think talking about grief is such an important part of the journey for individuals and for couples journeying betrayal Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and where does it sit in terms of that, that journey? Um, is it, is it right at the beginning? Is it through the whole thing? How would you situate it, uh, for most people's stories? Yeah. And so most people who know me know that I, um, work from the APSATS multidimensional partner trauma model. Um, and so, you know, in, in the sort of trauma recovery model, uh, typically grief sits in that sort of stage two place, which is the the middle between that traumatic uh, experience of not being safe um, and all of the stuff and the very sort of practical stuff that happens in stage one and post-traumatic growth, which is, you know, traditionally what we would put in stage three. However, I mean, that all sounds really nice and neat, doesn't it? Well, it just sits in stage yes. two and that's that's where it belongs and it's a nice linear process. But actually, what I have found is that um, at best you're looking at kind of woolly edges between stage one, two and three and actually it might be that they're sort of more layered on top of each other in some kind of staggered way Um, and so yeah I mean traditionally you'd see it put in stage two and Judith Herman in her model put it in stage two which is the model that Barbara Steffens adapted for APSATS Um, but yeah I guess I, I I often think about grief as being the the messy middle or the 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 you know the tricky middle piece and um it can bleed into both ends as well and for couples i would say it's it's probably a bit more of a weird uh wavy experience because it can be trickier for couples to find the places where their grief overlaps and connects and so um you know it's probably even less obvious where it sits for couples specifically, although we know it's somewhere in that middle piece. Right. Yeah. I, th- I, I completely agree. And, and yeah, also using that, um, multidimensional partner trauma model of APSATS. Um, I, I love the emphasis in that model 
on how safety and stability comes first, because one of the things we know about grief is I have to feel safe in order to grieve. Right. So, so it's not that the, you know, the loss hasn't happened or there's no grief earlier on, but for me to actually engage in this process of grief, I've got to feel safety and stability in place to, to enough of a degree to let me do that. Right. We often, um, you know, when when our guys in our recovery groups and we, we have groups that specifically focus on the relational aspects of recovery and they'll be like, oh, you know, we've we've done all this really great safety and stabilization work. And now my wife got really sad and they feel like that's some kind of mistake, like that's gone wrong. Um, and I often say to them, you know, that's actually a really good sign if she is yes, able to yes. access the depth depth of emotion and the vulnerability that engaging with grief requires, it probably means you've done some good stuff in that stage one safety work because she can't, we can't go there yeah. if we don't have that. Absolutely. I agree too. I always tell them it's a sign of progress. And one of the things I, I share, and this helps both um, uh, those who have done the betraying and those who are going through the experience of processing the betrayal is I try to help them learn to distinguish between a trauma trigger and what I call a grief wave. Um, because I think it's unhelpful if you mesh them all together, there's, you know, she's still getting triggered. I'm still right. getting triggered. Well, let's, you know, but what I experience in, in working with clients is those, those phase one safety and stability triggers, they're more hypervigilant, keyed up on edge, fight or flight, Right. Um, versus the stage two, these waves of grief that well up from inside intense feelings of sadness or anger. That's a very different experience. And I've had partners go, oh, yeah, that that is happening. That is a difference. Mm. That's progress. That's movement forward. Yeah, right. Love, and I learned I that, that from you, actually, oh. and um, <laughs> well, right began <laughs> using that when I was working with partners. And it's such a helpful um, differentiation um, because actually that word trigger is kind of overused um, in the yes. trauma community, I think. And so, you know, even when we teach on triggers, one of the things we're trying to teach our clients is, you know, a trauma trigger is like a specific thing. It's not any an unwanted emotional experience. You know, you don't get necessarily get triggered because your husband, I don't know, doesn't carry his socks up the stairs. That might upset you. It might frustrate you, but it's probably not a trauma trigger. Right. And that differentiation right. is super helpful. And, and with grief, Likewise, sometimes I use um, a model of, you know, some some people have talked about the grief spiral and about how you might kind of mm. go round grief um, at a deeper level. Um, and but I, I have often kind of conceptualized grief as being more like a ripple, you know, like when you drop a pebble into a pond and you have this expanding wave that comes out from yeah. it. Um, because what I love about that is when people, you know, they hit something that brings up grief and they feel like that's a step backwards when actually often that that experience is only possible because of the expansion that's taking place, the um, the growth in their awareness, something that they didn't even know was lost is now in their awareness. And so all of mm. that actually signifies growth. Um, but for the person experiencing it, they're just like, oh, no, how am I back in grief again? And it feels like a never ending process for them. Yeah. So let's let's D dive in a little deeper into grief itself now that we've talked about sort of where it's situated in the process and and maybe even define some terms here. So we talk about grief, but we also talk about mourning. What's the difference between grief and mourning? Yeah, I, I love to to actually make that differentiation because I think it helps people think about what it means to to engage with grief. So when I'm teaching about um, the grief associated with betrayal, I like to differentiate between grief as a sort of a noun, like grief is a thing that exists. Um, and so if you think about grief as the sort of emotional experience that comes with loss, um, whereas mourning, that's a that's like a verb, the verb to mourn, it implies action, it implies activity. And so that's the 
sort of process that we can engage with to to go through grief. So grief is the feeling, mourning is the action of choosing to process mm. through grief. And I think that's helpful because it kind of gives us a clue. Oh, there is something to do. There is a verb, yes. an action word to mourn. Yes, I, I love that. And and another thing that we both know in working with, with individuals and, and couples is that many people get stuck here at this mm. place in the process. In fact, several years ago, I mean, that was my big observation, you know, as I kind of thought about my own practice and my own work with clients and kind of surveyed the field more widely. It was, it, it was as if we were really good at helping people Okay, let's get them stable. Let's get them to disclosure. Let's get right. And then it was like, okay, now what? Um, <laughs> so right. why is it that so many partners, betrayed partners and couples get stuck in this grief process? Well, if I was going to answer that really authentically, I would say, because it sucks. Like grief <laughs> is not fun. And no. um I actually, I pulled out a quote from Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Recovery, which is one that we use in our teaching webinar on grief, because I think Judith Herman really sums up why people don't want to do the grief work. And she says this, she says, the second stage of recovery has a timeless quality that is frightening. Mm. Um, she says, mm. the reconstruction of the trauma requires immersion in a past experience which is frozen in time. Um, and she says the descent into mourning feels like a surrender to tears which are endless. And she says people wow. often ask how this, how long this painful process will last. And of course, there's no fixed answer to that question, only the assurance that it can't be bypassed or hurried and that it will surely mm. take longer than they want it to take, but it will not go on forever. Wow, that how have I never heard that quote before? Now I'm going to be isn't that, that doesn't up. that sum it up? That is so well stated and so we could spend the rest mm -hmm. of our time unpacking that quote. But yeah, that timeless quality, the timeless quality, the grief that makes so much sense. Oh, wow. That's beautiful, Kat. And because trauma you. is, you know, this this inability to differentiate what is past and what is present. Right. Um, you know, and I guess you spend a lot of energy in your stage one trigger management work, like trying to, to learn that skill. And so I, I guess it probably feels counterintuitive to then go hang out in the grief because hang on, I've just spent a whole lot of time learning how to be present. And now you're asking me to go sit in this frozen, timeless experience of the past. Um, and so I, I can see how that probably feels quite counterintuitive. And of course, it's a much more appealing message to say, okay, well, let's rebuild. Okay, I like I, I, I sometimes use the metaphor for trauma of um, like a, an earthquake. And it's like, okay, so we went in, we, we made sure that the, the ceiling wasn't going to fall down, we cleaned up the stuff that had sharp edges, we kind of made it safe. Our natural inclination is to now, okay, let's paint the walls, let's make it look pretty again, let's make it feel like a home again. And so when we say, actually, let's meticulously pick through the rubble and look at everything that is now broken or damaged and, and like, who, who really wants to do that? Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That is, that is so, so powerful. And, and so as people do begin to try to face that and engage that process, go back there and sit in it, what prevents people, or I'm sorry, what happens, you know, if, if they don't do that? I think that's what I'm trying to ask is what, what happens if, um, someone is looking at that saying, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go back there. I just did all this work. Um, what's at risk by not engaging in that mourning yeah. process of, of their grief? Well, it's really simple. If we choose to ignore it, it shows up 
uninvited and unexpected. Um, and so you sort of recreate that trigger experience with a different emotional state, right? So we're not quite getting hijacked in our trauma, but like you said, these grief waves are going to come mm -hmm. and make themselves known. And that's not, it's not fun and it will get in the way of the rebuilding work that we're trying to do. So when, again, when we sort of talk about uh, grief in our groups um do you know that children's book we're going on a bear hunt that's the one we oh, always yes. refer refer to because the story says you know they meet this series of obstacles along the way and you can't go over it and you can't go under it and you can't go around it you have to go through it and grief mm. is that it's the thing that's going to get in your way as you continue to journey towards rebuilding your own life or your relationship or whatever you're rebuilding and it's going to continue to be present with you without your consent without your participation and you're going to find that it's going to trip you up and and so it's it's one of those things i'm afraid that you can't go over it and you can't go under it and you can't go around it so you have to go through yeah yeah, yeah and that makes so much sense that explanation with with one of the ways i understand the grief process is being a meaning making process right what does it mean that this has happened what does it mean that this is my story how do i how do i live in this world this world where this has happened and right. um so without without going through it if i try to go around it if i try to go over it i'm i'm going to continually be really butting up against the reality that this thing has happened right I, I have to i have to process what it means that this has happened in order to sort of have a sense of agency to move forward in my own life Right. And I think that's another part of the resistance, Jake, is, um, you know, we often talk about um, I talk a lot about power and choice, you know, that those are two of the key components of recovery from trauma, because trauma is a disempowered, choiceless experience. And so we're trying to restore that power and choice. Um, and actually, as chaotic and um in, intense as the stage one part of this journey is, it's often a place where you can find empowerment, you can make choices, you can, you know, all of that is being restored in stage one. And so if we're doing a great job in stage one, we're getting our people to a place where they're beginning to feel empowered and like they have choices. And then it feels like you're sort of putting the brakes on that a little bit to say, now we need to go deal with the grief. And so, um, again, I think that's part of the resistance is like, I don't want to give up this power and choice that I've worked so hard to create for myself. And of course, you're not really doing mm. that. If you're making right. a choice to engage in the process of mourning, then then you are making that choice. But I think that's the fear is that somehow we're going to have to give up some of that newfound power and choice. Yeah. And and so that might be one reason people are kind of resistant to to diving in and doing doing the grief work. What are some other uh, things that prevent people from processing their grief? Mm. I think fear is the big one. Like I have heard um, every iteration of uh, I might not survive. Like if I start to cry, I might never stop. If I begin wow. to feel this, I might get overwhelmed. And and something in the sort of nervous system is really experiencing that fear as a survival threat. Like it might be so big that I might actually die. Um, and, and it sounds kind of silly to say that out loud, but, but people are saying that and they are experiencing that feeling of this just is so big that it feels like I might, I might not make it through to the other side. Wow. Yeah. Just yesterday I was actually teaching a course, a, a doctoral seminar for, um, a doctor of professional counseling program and the students were doing a bunch of presentations and someone and they were all on different assessment tools I, everyone had to present on a different assessment tool and someone presented on an assessment tool for something called prolonged grief uh, disorder um, and 
And even though the questions specifically kept referring to the death of somebody, what kept coming up for me is all of the symptoms around what they were labeling as the the the, the bereavement, the, the actual loss, uh, the death of someone applied to betrayed partners. And before mm-hmm. I could say it, when the presentation was over, someone else spoke up and said, I've got clients who feel that way about a relationship. And it's just, it was such a striking mm-hmm. example of, of what you're saying here. Like it feels completely overwhelming. It feels like too much. It feels like it could kill me. Like, like my heart can't survive this. Th- right. Those are the kind of things in the assessment. And um, so, yeah, it's like your a literal heartbreak, isn't it? You yes. know, and you hear people yes. talk about the physical experience of that. It does show up in the body and they feel the pain and the heaviness in the chest and they feel that kind of heartbroken feeling that can only come with this kind of experience. I um, I did some counseling with um, people who had lost loved ones in the pandemic. Um, and, you know, strikingly similar experience, as you were just saying, you know, the, the, they're experiencing the same resistances. A big part of bereavement loss is I just don't want it to be true. I don't want them to right. not be here anymore. Yes. I don't want to accept that this thing is real and so there's lots of um you know part of that defense mechanism is the denial like they just they don't want to go there because that will mean it's really real and and so there's a a whole lot of crossover um with Mm. bereavement death and non non non-death loss yeah for sure for sure and also that's the one of the symptoms if we want to use that that of um how is the world continuing to go on around mm-hmm. them, right? That's another big one that I've experienced both when someone has lost a loved one, but also after the discovery of betrayal, the world just keeps going for everyone else and they just feel stuck, right. just frozen in the the trauma and the tragedy of what's what's occurred. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Well, what can people do to to begin to work with their grief and enter a process of mourning. You know, if someone's listening right now and they're thinking, yeah, that's me, that's where I am. That's my fear. I haven't wanted to go there. How can they uh, begin to engage in this process? Yeah. I think the the big thing and the reason why I like to differentiate the the feeling of grief from the process of mourning is so that you can make an empowered choice to engage in the process of mourning, right? It's not like grief is is a almost like a passive thing. Like grief happens to us. We feel it, we can't control that feeling, but mourning doesn't have to be passive. Mourning can be something that we can choose to be intentional about that we can um, kind of titrate ourselves to. We don't have to mourn everything all at once. We can take small steps in that process by making space and time to sit and engage with our grief. And we can sort of uh, strategize around how we want to do that in a way that feels manageable, in a way that feels safe, and in a way that feels supported. So, you know, the first thing I think that people can do to choose to enter a process of mourning is choose to enter a process of mourning um, (laughs) and kind of surrender themselves to that process. Um, But but I also think a hugely important piece of that is if I'm going to choose to enter a process of mourning, I want to make sure that I'm maintaining the safety that has brought me to the place of being able to access those feelings of grief. And so I really, really want a supportive, safe community around me who can hold me while I let some of that brokenness be seen, be known and be experienced. You don't want to do this all by yourself. Um, And I think that's another part of why people get stuck um, is because they don't have, and you hear this a lot with bereavement, actually, where there comes a point where like people are sick of hearing about this now. They're ready for me to be over this. They're ready for me to move on. Um, And in order for that 
to be possible we need to process it but we can't process it because everybody's over it already and so that keeps us stuck and so yeah i would say let's let's choose to engage it but let's create the the right environment for that to be possible for that to be manageable um and for that to be something that we can cope with so that it doesn't overwhelm us and it doesn't take us out yeah absolutely as as i hear you speak to that point, what came up in my mind is that that's true of grief in general about needing that, that relational context, needing other people that, mm-hmm. that the grief process, when we don't have that safe community and those safe relationships to, 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 to be there, to hold us up, to, to support us, to be a sounding board. Um, yeah, grief that, that morning process, it, it doesn't happen effectively. That's true of, of grief in general. And I definitely right. know I've seen that to be true for betrayal in, in, in instances of betrayal. Yeah. Wow. And I think in the Western world, we're not very good at grief, um, partly because we have kind of individualized our society so much. So when you look back in history, when you look at other cultures, you will see a series of grief and mourning rituals um, that are communal and community focused. Um, So, you know, you you see these images coming out of uh, African countries where they appoint people whose job it is to verbally and overtly exclaim grief, these wailers whose job it is to sort of mourn on behalf of the people. And, um, you know, in Jewish culture, they, they sit Shiva and they, they create this environment of mourning for the whole family and the whole community. Um, there, are, there are grief rituals all the way through history and all the way through cultures that we just don't really do so much anymore. I was reading just this week about drive-by funerals um, where, you know, and I I appreciate there there might be a necessity for that, but this is like, they're talking about you pull up to a window and you sort of wave at the closest family members who are sitting in the chairs by the casket or the coffin and that's it. And I'm just like, wow, we have divorced ourselves from the process of grief and mourning and and the communal aspect of that to such a degree where now if I'm crying two weeks later it's there's something wrong with me that I'm not just over it so I think there's lots to learn from the way that other cultures process grief and mourning wow yeah absolutely and and as we are are thinking through this topic of grief. Another question, do you think that this process is different for individuals versus um, couples moving through it together? Yeah, for sure. And there's a, I was trying to think about, um, you know, knowing that I was going to talk to you, I was trying to think about what are the key differences that I see between, um, you know, people who are engaging the process of mourning themselves and a couple trying to do that together. And obviously, when you're trying to do that with a couple or facilitate that for a couple, it's more complex because you've got two individual yes. people <laughs> and two individual perspectives right. trying to find a way to come together. Um, and I think one of the the key things that struck me as I was reflecting on that is that you've got a person usually with Um, an addictive or compulsive or problematic history um, who usually has worked really, really hard to construct a whole series of mental uh, gymnastics that help them keep that separate from this other thing that's happening in their life. So you've got denial, you've got compartmentalization. So you've got one person who's kind of really distanced from the the grief and the loss and probably has never even thought about that and then you've got this other person who has trauma and trauma is about ruminating and reliving and intrusive uh re kind of experiencing of this event so you've got one person who's working hard never to think about this and one person who's not able to not think about this ever and what you're trying to do is find some middle ground in there which involves kind of calling this person out of a cave and this person down from a kind of you know soapbox or whatever and so it's really 
it's really challenging, I think, to to create some middle ground in there that uh, that they can connect over because of how different their perspectives are around this. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I think that's so well said. And and again, I, I mentioned this earlier, conceptualizing of grief is a meaning making process. What does it mean that this happened? Um, it's a lot easier to do that on your own. Yeah. Not on your own, like as in totally isolated, but if I get to decide what my meaning is without regard to what your meaning of the event is, that that's a much more straightforward process than, okay, we're going to, we're going to try to continue to be a couple and come up with a shared meaning of right. what's happened because we want to have a shared understanding of where we're going from here, much more complicated. Wow. Right. Yeah. And you'll know this. I mean, th the work that I do with couples is often, you know, big part of what I'm trying to enable between the, the couples that I'm working with is even just an ability to articulate what is kind of going, going on inside of my head. So often they do have some sort of sense of where their losses are and some sort of sense of what that might mean for them. But to, to try to communicate that verbally to another person who's wearing their own filter of understanding and try to, you know, connect in that space can be really challenging. And because the experience of grief is multidimensional and multidirectional, it involves the past, it involves the future, it involves the present, like just putting that in a sentence that another person can hear and understand and respond to is a real challenge. And so I think that's why the best grief work for a lot of couples happens with a third person in the room so that we can help them kind of tease it out and say yes. it out loud and be received yes. by that other person. Yes. Well said. Well said. Well, so what begins to happen? Uh, what changes when someone does engage that process of mourning and they, they begin to actually let their grief be expressed and experienced and acknowledged? Hmm. I, I sometimes talk about that process of mourning as being like soul care, because I think mm. grief, like it comes from such a deep place that, you know, it's, it's really an invitation to kind of go inward and be with yourself, which I think is just a really um, beautiful gift to give yourself and, you know, quite countercultural based on what I was saying about how we typically approach grief and mourning as a as a culture. And so when we can begin to do that, I think transformation happens. We begin to meet ourselves in a new way. We begin to, like you said, kind of make meaning and translate our experiences into something that can make sense. It's like a sense making process. Um, for the partner, often the grieving and mourning process is where they will really learn about their uh, sense of intuition, discernment, inner knowing. If they don't go back to those places, sometimes I call that um, breadcrumbing, you know, like Hansel and Gretel, they left this little trail of breadcrumbs. And like for the partner, often what they're doing is going back and picking up those little breadcrumbs and going, ah, oh, I knew it. I knew something was wrong here. Um, and engaging with the process of mourning often is where they go find those little breadcrumbs and they begin to learn, I can trust myself. I can trust my intuition. Um, and that's super helpful for them. I think in the process of um, mourning in, in couples work, that is really the place that I see uh, the men that we work with. And, you know, I'm using those terms because typically for the work that we do, it's men who it's the male betrayer and the female partner. Um, so typically in, in the couples grief work is where I see the person with uh, who committed the betrayal really stretched like they're they're doing all they can to stay in this and really hear and really learn and this is where in my experience they are growing exponentially in their own awareness they because they've worked hard it's almost like she's like pulling the 
pulling the the dots together and he's going oh there's dots like he didn't even know and so he's off he's like catching up and learning and you can sort of see it happening like the eyes go wide and he's like whoa okay there is so much more here than i knew um and hopefully and often this is a place where empathy really starts to blossom as they can hear oh okay that's what this means and so actually it's it's a beautiful process to watch a couple go through it just feels really sticky and tricky sometimes which is why people don't want to do it oh so well said again cat and i i thought about a couple i had it's been several years since i've seen them but he was probably around 70 she was in her 60s and he he had um, been referred from a large treatment program where he'd spent a few months so he came out he, he had some really good, solid recovery tools. He told me in the first session I ever saw with him, look, I'm old and you can't keep teaching old dog new tricks and I'm sober and I'm never going to do this again, but don't expect me to really, you know, do a whole bunch of other changing and growing. And it was, it, it was when he finally opened himself to joining her in grief that this real deep, like you said, transformation happened. And I, there's a moment that I recall where he was, he just got overwhelmed and saying, this feels so new. It feels so, so different. It's, it's kind of an aha moment. And, um, and it was, it was a, a pivotal, a pivotal moment for his story and their story because he mm-hmm. finally entered into that place of grief. And I guess I'm and saying that's that in case, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and uh, so I've yeah. had similar experiences and what I see happen as a result of that is this kind of uh, knock on effect because yes. he's experiencing that for the first time in this kind of present day event. Um, but actually once they, once the person with the addictive behavior recognizes that grief and mourning is accessible to them, you begin to see that, that sort of breadcrumbing happening for them. And often they're going all the way back to their own childhoods and going, Oh, that's right. There was some stuff I didn't get. There was some stuff I didn't know. There was some stuff that wasn't, wasn't offered to me that could have made this really different for me. And so in finding Finding their empathy for the grief of the partner, they suddenly access that compassion for themselves and they can mourn a whole series of losses in their own life, which creates more personal transformation for them and therefore translates into more growth within the relationship. So it's the it's like a it's like unlocking the, the puzzle yes. somehow. Yes, that's that's almost exactly what I was going to say, Kat. Yeah, it, okay. it, it, if someone's listening, you know, if someone's listening and they're like, and, and it's the person who did the betraying, you know, and you're thinking, oh, I mean, I want to do it for my partner. Yeah, I love her, you know, but oh, man, that sounds awful. <laughs> well, right. it's good for you, too. It's good mm-hmm. for you, too. It is it is facing these complex relational circumstances that that opens for us the opportunity for our individual for development growth you know um healing yeah so yeah that so good so good so um so let's say someone's listening they're thinking okay well i guess i'll you know they look at their calendar and they think hey you know uh i've got nothing scheduled two weekends from now um i'll knock it out you know, I'll just, <laughs> I'll set aside Saturday and Sunday in a couple of weeks. Um, could they do that? Is, is this whole morning thing? Is it a one and done process, Kat? Yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be great if I could say yes to that, <laughs> that you could just yeah. go do um, some journaling, just write some stuff down and, and be done. Um, I, I, I wonder, even as we're having this conversation, there are lots of aspects of like recovery that, you know, that's interesting language, isn't it? That, that feel like they are lifelong adventures. And I wonder if grief and mourning isn't actually one of those places where, you know, I was talking about that ripple earlier on where, you know, as, as we continue to grow and develop, as we reach the limits of ourselves, as we reach the limits of our skills and our knowledge and our awareness, uh, I wonder if there are, they're, they're not the places where we will continue to, to, 
recognize the need for mourning, um, you know, just as people in general, people raised in imperfect families and imperfect cultures. Um, I wonder if if mourning is more of an ongoing process of renewal of the self in some way. And I know that sounds like really romantic and kind of idealistic, but I, I do think that the growth that comes through, um, who is it? Somebody says, don't they, like uh, life is a series of deaths or being in relationship is like being what, experiencing a series of deaths of the person that you know. And I think that's right, that we, as we continue to grow, we continue to let go of things that are not really who we are. And sometimes that will come with with loss and mourning. So sadly, not a one and done process, maybe not a forever process. That's me kind of thinking out loud a little bit, but um, there are definitely ways to, to make meaningful progress if you choose to step into that. Absolutely. And so let's, let's get, get practical here. Uh, what are some ways that people listening who know they need to do this, that they can actually begin to mourn? Uh, the losses they have around betrayal. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there are some sort of environmental factors um, that I would want people to have in place first. You want to be in a supportive environment with people that can hold you up. And so if you don't have one already, go find yourself a group, go find yourself a group of safe people, a community where you can dig in. Um, and, you know, we have online communities. And actually, interestingly, we found that there's something about the shared energy of being in the same space that feels really important for for grief and mourning that sort of yes. ability to feel it feel through it with somebody and so ideally i i think that you know if you're going to do a big chunk of grief work that's better done in person um and, and, you know, a really practical way to start and the way that we often start with a lot of our clients is let's just make a list. Let's make a list of all the things that feel like they're lost. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll categorize those into things that feel like they're lost forever. Like those are those are gone forever. And when I going back to that analogy of like the rubble, I think of it like this. It's like my house was was shaken by an earthquake and stuff fell down and as i pick through the rubble i'm going to pick up items and i'm going to be able to assess is that broken beyond repair and if it is it mm. might need to go um is it something yeah. that maybe i can fix up in some way and it might have some use again in the future um is it something that i could repurpose in some way and so i think actually that this kind of process of just figuring out what's lost and gone forever what's different but still has kind of a sense of loss attached to it what's salvageable and reusable and what does that look like and i think that's really what we're doing in the process of mourning but as a place to start it can give you uh, an, an inroad yeah that's good thank you so much and and you mentioned safe community for morning you mentioned your y'all have some online communities i know a lot of our appsets colleagues do groups and that sort of thing but um what are some other specific places people can find a safe community for mourning. And I know that you have some very specific uh, opportunities coming up for, for people who might want to engage in this work. Could you share about that? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, you know, as I said, one, although we've been doing online work with um, partners and couples for a really long time, um, and I, you know, that's the benefit of having longer, longer term communities with clients in them, isn't it? You get to learn what really works and what is missing from your process. And I think what we noticed is that 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 tangible presence of other human beings was something we really felt we wanted to be able to offer to our clients. And so we started running retreats that are specifically focused on betrayal related grief for our partners, partly so that. Um, especially if they are part of a coupleship, it kind of gave them a chance to to clear some of that a little bit so that they could come back into the relationship and be uh, a bit more able to articulate what they wanted and needed to share with their partner. Um, but also because there is something just super special about 
partners, betrayed partners, communities that is so very safe and so very healing in its safety that we just we just loved bringing these women together to do that work together. And so, yeah, I wanted to share about some upcoming retreats that we're running in the US. Yes. And for the first ever time yes. in Australia, which we're super excited Wonderful. about because we've been hearing how few resources there are down there. So you can come and spend a weekend with us engaging in those communal ritualistic uh, grief and mourning processes and we're also doing a couples retreat in the US this year um, which has elements of looking back and mourning together as well as elements of kind of taking stock of where things are now and looking to the future and so I wanted to make sure that your listeners got to hear about those opportunities to come and join our safe communities. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we'll have the links in the show notes. But in case someone's, you know, listening while they're driving or running or something like that, where could they go online, Kat, to learn more? Yeah, they can go to nakedtruthproject.com and there's a drop down menu that says get help. Um, and there's a, a link on there that will take you to the pages that talk about our retreats. Okay. Thank you, Kat. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and I really appreciate this topic. Um, you have such great insights and it's such a great way of explaining and teaching things, which is why you're one of the new trainers for AppSats. That's also some big headline news. Yes, uh, mm -hmm. Kat will be um, one of the new trainers for AppSats multidimensional partner trauma model training. Uh, one of those coming up in June, I believe, right? That's and right. So you and Stacy will be taking that on. Um, so if you've gotten a lot from Kat and you're a professional in this field or want to be, that's another opportunity to look into and get to hear more from Kat. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you so you, much Kat, for having for me, Jay. Yes. It was fabulous. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you. Yes. Oh, <laughs> the crowd goes wild. You've been listening to Betrayal Recovery Radio, the official podcast of AppSats. If you've received help or hope from this episode, I encourage you to share it with someone you know. If you've not yet done so, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening platform. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Jake Porter, and you can always email me directly at jake at appsats.org. I'd love to hear your ideas questions or comments about the show until next time keep choosing to use your voice and live your values it's good for you and for this world